Peter Faust. This is Permaculture Perspectives. And today I wanted to get into oh where it is that we can find the most opportunity and possibility when it comes to evolving a response to the state of affairs going on at present, the pandemic crisis that the world is faced with shows many weaknesses and vulnerabilities I've suggested in other material that I've been writing. And I wanted to elaborate on that. What are those and how do we address them? Uh, because while it's great to note that things can be exposed for their weakness, it's important to have some solutions that we can hold up and champion and some thinkers that I want to begin today's podcast with. I'm going to be sharing with you a, a piece that I feel offers us insights in this time and age of asking deeper questions of ourselves, who we are, where we'd like to go from here as we think about the transformative effect of grappling with our own mortality in a day and age that imagines it has transcended the natural cycles of evolution, which clearly we have not. So this is a reading from Krishnamurti, a collection of writings entitled Total Freedom. And I like Krishnamurti's perspective because he gives us this snapshot into a time when people were thinking much more deeply about some of our opportunities to evolve. So I'm starting here from page 262. It would be a thousand pities if you did not understand this simple thing. Human beings have lived in conflict. If you want peace through conflict, there can never be peace through conflict. However, many armaments you may have against another's equally strong armaments, there will never be peace. Only when intelligence operates will there be peace. The intelligence that comes when one understands that there is no division between the observer and the observed. The insight into that very fact, that very truth, brings this intelligence. This is a very serious thing, for then you will see that you have no nationality. You may have a passport, but you have no nationality, you have no gods, there is no outside authority, nor inward authority. The only authority, then, is intelligence. It is not the cunning intelligence of thought, which is mere knowledge operating within a certain area, and that is not intelligence. 
So this is the first thing to understand. When you look at your consciousness, the division between the thinker and the thoughts, between the observer and the observed, between the experiencer and the experienced is false, for they are one. There is no thinker if you do not think. Thought has created the thinker. That is the first thing to understand, to have an insight into the truth of, the fact of, as palpable as you sitting there, so there is no conflict between the observer and the observed. So what is the content of your consciousness, the hidden as well as the open? Can you look at it and not make an effort? You can find this out, not just sitting there, but in your relationships. That is the mirror in which you will see, not by closing your eyes or bo or by going off into the woods and thinking up some dreams in the actual fact of your relationship with man, woman, your neighbor, your politician, your gods, your gurus. You will observe your reactions, your attitudes, your prejudices, your images, your constant groping. The content is in that. What are you doing now? What you are doing now is merely plowing, and you can only sow when you observe your relationships and see what actually is taking place. You can look as much as you like and begin to distinguish various qualities and tendencies, but if you look as an observer different from the observed, then you are bound to create conflict and therefore further suffering. When you have an insight, see the truth that the observer is the observed, then conflict ceases altogether. Then a totally different kind of energy comes into operation. There are different kinds of energy. There is physical energy from good food. There may be energy created from emotionalism, sentimentality. There is energy created by thought through various conflicts and tensions within the field of energy we have lived. And we are still trying to find greater energy within that field to solve our problems. There is a different kind of energy or the continuation of this energy in a totally different form when the mind is operating completely, not in the field of thought, but intelligently. And he goes on. And Krishnamurti and his writing there is explicative of the the real uh, insights that he provides that I want to share with you. He's, he's one of the great thinkers of our time, arguably, and a radical deconstructionalist. And what he reconstructs around is, in a sense, the ultimate anarchist core, you know, like anchor for you to sink into because it has so little attachment to any particularness. It comes from a groundedness that would be, maybe we could describe with words by calling it something like just being, as we hear often um, if we delve into the Buddhist realm very much, you'll hear a lot of emphasis on just being. 
And it's an important emphasis. It's why I've said that this important part of the culture that we need to respond to the damaged culture, the healing culture, that work of healing the present damaged system is holistic work that needs to not repeat the mistakes of the past system. And one of the mistakes has been this notion that people need to be taught what it is they need to do. And the tradition that Krishnamurti is coming from, that I identify and teach from and operate from, frankly, as a philosopher and as a person, is this, this approach of... Uh, Encouraging the individual to find within themselves meaning, value, purpose, and to move towards that and to support them in discovering their direction of growth. A flower will emerge when it's not forced under the pavement of normalcy. And so Krishnamurti offering us some words thinking about how do we, in what ways do we move beyond our thoughts, move beyond nationalism, move beyond this tendency to let words divide us rather than connect us and realize that there are certain things that no matter what camp we're associating with, we can all agree upon. Like, everyone needs to eat. Everyone needs to have good water to drink. Everyone needs to have good air to breathe. Everyone needs to have a healthy, caring, and loving community supporting them and reveling with them in the life of this abundant earth that we live in and on and with. And to my next reading, Stolen Harvest, Vandana Shiva, The Hijacking of the Global Food Supply. This is from a section, finding my way here. This, the section I want to share with you is some of Vandana's writing in this book about what is going on with the industrialization of food. Okay, here we are. Monocultures and monopolies. The stolen harvest of seed. For more than 10,000 years, farmers have worked with nature to evolve 
thousands of crop varieties to suit diverse climates and cultures. Indian farmers have evolved thousands of varieties of rice. Andean farmers have bred more than 3,000 varieties of potatoes. In Papua New Guinea, more than 5,000 varieties of sweet potatoes are cultivated. This tremendous diversity has been the basis of our food supply, but today it is under threat from genetic erosion and genetic piracy. Monocultures and monopolies are destroying the rich harvest of seed given to us over millennia by nature and farming cultures. From the 250,000 to 300,000 species of plants alive today, at least 10,000 to 50,000 are edible, 7,000 species have been farmed and used for food, just 30 species provide 90% of world calorie intake and only four species, rice, maize, wheat, and soybean, provide most of the calories and proteins consumed by the world's population through global trade. As Hope Shand of Rural Advancement Foundation International, Rafi, has stated, There is no doubt about the global economic importance of these major crops, but the tendency to focus on a small number of species masks the importance of plant species diversity to the world food supply. A very different picture would emerge if we were to look into women's cooking pots and if we could survey local markets and give attention to household use of non-domesticated species. Local markets and local cultures have allowed crop diversity to thrive in our fields, enabling farmers to continue evolving diverse breeds and conserving seeds and plant varieties. Ensuring the continued use of these seeds and plants is the best way to conserve them. And that is important to realize, to give as a side note emphasis there, ensuring the continued use of these seeds and plants is the best way to conserve them. So the need to have more people involved in smaller scale gardening and farming where we save our seed and develop unique local varieties is the best way to keep this diversity of plant power at our fingertips. Whichever economic system determines how plant species are used also influences which species will survive and will be pushed to extinction. Let me read that whole sentence again for you because I think it's such a powerful core part of the thesis here that I want to share. Local markets and local cultures have allowed crop diversity to thrive in our fields, enabling farmers to continue evolving diverse breeds and conserving seeds and plant varieties. Ensuring the continued use of those seeds and plants is the best way to conserve them. Whichever economic system determines how plant species are used also influences which species will survive and which will be pushed to extinction. As global markets replace local markets, monocultures replace diversity. Traditionally, 10,000 wheat varieties were grown in China. 
These had been reduced to only 1,000 by the 1970s. Only 20% only 20 of Mexico's maize diversity survives today. At one time, more than 7,000 varieties of apples were grown in the United States. More than 6,000 are now extinct. In the Philippines, where peasants used to cultivate thousands of traditional rice varieties, just two Green Revolution varieties occupied 98% of the entire gro rice growing area by the mid-1980s. In 1996, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, organized the Leipzig Conference on Plant Genetic Resources, which identified the introduction of new crop varieties as the single most important cause of the massive loss of species diversity and native seeds. But diversity is under assault not just by monocultures but also by monopolies. Monocultures and monopolies. Industrial agriculture promotes the use of monocultures because of its need for centralized control over the production and distribution of food. In this way, monocultures and corporate monopolies reinforce each other. Today, three processes are intensifying monopoly control over seed. The first link in the food chain, economic concentration, patents and intellectual property rights and genetic engineering. Monsanto, which was earlier recognized primarily through its association with Agent Orange, today controls a large section of the seed industry. Between 1995 and 1998, Monsanto spent over $8 billion buying seed companies. Monsanto holds a controlling interest in CalGene, a California-based plant biotechnology firm that launched the Flavor Saver Tomato. In 1996, it bought the biotechnology assets of Agricetus, and this list of Monsanto buying out biotech companies goes on for about four paragraphs after this. So again, the message there is people power through reclaiming the means of production, putting food back in the hands of local communities by bringing local landscapes back into and into a version of diversified farming that has never been seen before by synthesizing ecological restoration with high-yield, high-production, perennial polyculture landscapes integrated with intensive cultivation of annuals that are being fertilized with local wastes and food scraps and manures. And now, let's look a little bit more at the industrial belly of the beast and what the problem is as we continue to go back and forth between the two sides of this reality we live in, the solution set side and the direction of growth that we want to enhance and be participating in and the vigilant awareness of what the problem is and the scope and scale of what we're up against and how it is we realistically, through solidarity, bring about a vision and a value set that many broad-sectored people can identify with 
and get on board with turning around a train wreck of a civilization. So this one I wanted to share with you is a shorter section here on science for sale. And this is from a book called The Piracy of America, Profiteering in the Public Domain. Um, where do I want to start here? Well, we're talking about um, weed scientists. I'm just going to start right here in the middle. Weed scientists, a close-knit fraternity of researchers in industry, academia, and government, like to call themselves nozzleheads or spray-and-pray guys. As the nickname suggests, their focus is actually much narrower than weeds. As many of its leading practitioners admit, weed science almost always means herbicide science, and herbicide science almost always means herbicide justification science. Using their clout as the most important source of research dollars, chemical companies have skillfully wielded weed scientists to ward off the EPA, organic farmers, and others who want to wean American farmers away from their dependence on atrazine, alachlor, and other chemical weed killers. The numbers tell part of the story. About 1,400 weed scientists in the United States work for chemical companies, compared to just 75 for the federal government and 180 for universities around the nation, according to James Parachetti of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Independent scientists are a very small part of the picture because herbicides dominate weed science so totally, says John Radden, who oversees weed science research at the USDA's Agricultural Research Service. But industry's dominance of weed science is even more overwhelming than those numbers suggest. The reason is money. The USDA usually pays the salaries of researchers who work at the land-grant universities that are at the heart of the nation's academic agricultural research. However, a scientist needs much more than a salary. Lab equipment, supplies, technicians, and graduate students are just as essential. Researchers must fend for themselves in securing the financial support for those extra expenses. If they are unable to win federal grants, there is generally only one other place to turn. Chemical companies have the leverage to dominate research even with relatively small grants of a few thousand dollars per year. Our universities are like a limousine with a well-trained chauffeur, Kent Cookston, who heads the Department of Agronomy at the University of Minnesota, says. We have the limo and the chauffeur, but no gas money. When someone comes along with a little gas, they determine where we drive for a few thousand bucks. The large federal grants are difficult to obtain, and there's probably many more weed scientists out there who are relying very heavily on these smaller grants that come from the agricultural chemical industry. Alex Oog, Jr., USDA researcher and pre past president of the Weed Science Society of America, says, If you don't have any research on them, what's coming from the ag chem com 
companies, you're going to be doing research on agricultural chemicals. That's the hard, cold fact. So, big surprise there, but wanted to share with you a little of the technical source material that I dig into for understanding how and why we need to first advocate strongly for organic measures as a bottom line. And then second, it's about a whole landscape transformation where we do watershed-based planning so that we get this end-of-the-pipe mitigation uh, untenable, really, uh, approach to environmental health that our regulatory system operates off of right now and turn it around and say, we're going to redesign from the bottom up the entire infrastructure so that we aren't running around doing things in a way that's inherently problematic and unhealthy. And the way the chemical industry works and the regulatory industry works and the amount of chemicals that go on the land in this country in order to do this thing with quotes, grow food, because nobody really should be eating food that's grown with so many chemicals that's contaminating groundwater, grown with so many chemicals that it's the largest non-point source of pollution in the entire country. Uh, so great book. lot more expose essays in it if you want to really um, get into some of this information. It's called The Piracy of America. Um, edited by Judith Scherf, S-C-H-E-R-F-F. So it's a collection of essays there. I thought I'd share a piece here from a historic book, and I'm going to kind of do this pattern as we go into the podcast series here, continuing where I start out with a reading from something that's more philosophical, get into some science analysis, and then read something from at least one of the historic seminal texts that Bill Mullison and permaculture as a tradition is standing on the shoulders of, and this one is one of the great classics. It is called Farmers of Forty Centuries by F.H. King, and I thought that I would read about the utilization of waste and share with you a snapshot of some of F.H. King's writings. A little bit more about the book. Let's flip to the inner page here. We've got Farmers of Forty Centuries, the subtitle, Permanent Agriculture in China, Korea, and Japan. And as you know, with our term permaculture, it is a contraction of this predating term, permanent agriculture. Permanent agriculture is the precursor to permaculture. So this is one of the early books that uses that term. How early? The copyright 1911. F.H. King formerly professor of agricultural physics in the University of Wisconsin and chief of division of soil management for the U.S. Department 
of agriculture. 1911 writes this book, uh, known to be a groundbreaking book in helping the West to realize all kinds of things that it was doing wrong with scale, scope, and lack of diversity, uh, lack of a lot of understanding of how to cycle nutrients wisely, especially human nutrients and waste streams from towns and latrines, as we'll be reading about here, which is why I picked this chapter. One of the most lively and engaging and always of interest is what is happening with human sewage. Or as your kids might say, good old poop and pee, right? Always a fascinating topic. And it is, because it really is at the core of human civilization design and what it is that ends up making urban settlements, especially a type one error, meaning uh, having all kinds of health issues and water quality issues because of sewage overflows and their impacts, or a civilization in a city that does not have fetid, polluted water all around it because of how it wisely and thoughtfully is making use of this rich resource of human sewage, black water, gray water, nutrient loads. So here we are, F.H. King. F.H. King brings to the West all this knowledge of what's going on in the East. Because uh, as we read there in the subtitle, it's not just China, it's Korea and Japan. Great book. It is... Um, it is over 400 pages long and a really excellent source material. The Utilization of Waste. One of the most remarkable agricultural practices adopted by any civilized people is the centuries-long and well-nigh universal conservation and utilization of all human waste in China, Korea, and Japan turning it to marvelous account in the maintenance of soil fertility and in the production of food. To understand this evolution, it must be recognized that mineral fertilizers so extensively employed in modern Western agriculture, like the extensive use of mineral coal, had been a physical impossibility to all people alike until within very recent years. With this fact must be associated the very long, unbroken life of these nations and the vast numbers their farmers have been compelled to feed. When we reflect upon the depleted fertility of our own older farmlands, comparatively few of which have seen a century service, and upon the enormous quantity of mineral fertilizers which are being applied annually to them in order to secure paying yields, it becomes evident that the time is here when profound consideration should be given to the practices of the Mongolian race. Has pra of the practices the Mongolian race has maintained through many centuries, which permit it to be said of China that one-sixth of an acre of good land is ample for the maintenance of one person and which are feeding an average of three people per acre of farmland in the three southernmost of the four main islands of Japan. From the analyses of mixed 
human excreta made by Wolf in Europe and by Kellner in Japan, it appears that, as an average, these carry in every 2,000 pounds, 12.7 pounds of nitrogen, 4 pounds of potassium, and 1.7 pounds of phosphorus. On this basis, and that of Carpenter, who estimates the average amount of excreta per day for the adult at 40 ounces, the average annual production per million of adult population is 5,794,300 pounds of nitrogen, 1,825,000 pounds of potassium, and 775,600 pounds of phosphorus carried in 456,250 tons of excreta. The figures which Hall cites in fertilizers and manures would make these amounts 7,940,000 pounds of nitrogen, 3,070,500 pounds of potassium, 1,000,000... Anyway, this goes on and on. Wow. In 1908, This material was something that he really went into quite a bit of breakdown about. Here's an interesting place to jump back in. Man is the most extravagant accelerator of waste the world has ever endured. His withering blight has fallen upon every living thing within his reach, himself not accepted, and his besom of destruction in the uncontrolled hands of a generation has swept into the sea soil fertility which only centuries of life could accumulate, and yet this fertility is the substratum of all that is living. It must be recognized that the phosphate deposits which we are beginning to return to our fields are but measures of fertility lost from older soils and indices of processes still in progress. The rivers of North America are estimated to carry to the sea more than 500 tons of phosphorus with each cubic mile of water. To such loss, modern civilization is adding that of hydraulic sewage disposal through which the waste of 500 millions of people might be more than 194,300 tons of phosphorus annually, which could not be replaced by 1,295,000 tons of rock phosphate, 75% pure. The Mongolian races with a population... I apologize to any listeners who are offended by this dated language. This is a 1911 text. A population now approaching the figure named occupying an area little more than one-half that of the United States, tilling less than 800,000 square miles of land, and much of this during 20, 30, or perhaps 40 centuries unable to avail themselves of mineral fertilizers, could not survive and tolerate such waste. Compelled to solve the problem of avoiding such wastes and exercising the faculty which is characteristic of the race, they cast down their buckets where they were as not even in great cities like Canton built in the meshes of tide-swept rivers and canals, like Hankou on the banks of one of the largest rivers in the world, 
nor yet in modern Shanghai, Yokohama, or Tokyo is such waste permitted. To them, such a practice has meant race suicide, and they have resisted the temptation so long that it has ceased to exist. So quite a bit to say about this. And and then he goes on and on about exactly how they collect it, store it, distribute it, to have it be safe, hygienic, and well handled. Farmers of 40 Centuries, F.H. King, still one of the best books considered you'll find on rice and the production of rice. So as I get near the end here of this podcast, I'm going to wrap up with a reading to you to consider some words and teachings and perspectives from Lao Tzu, Understanding the Mysteries, 119, Lao Tzu said, Sages cover everything like the sky, bear everything like the earth, and shine on everything like the sun and moon. They bring harmony like yin and yang, and foster development like the four seasons. They embrace all beings without being the same. For them there is nothing old, nothing new, nothing remote, nothing familiar. So for those who can emulate nature, the sky does not have just one season, the earth does not have just one material, and people do not have just one task. That is why there are many kinds of work and many types of pursuits. It is that those who deploy armies may be careless or may be serious, may be greedy or may be modest. These things are contradictory and cannot be unified. The careless want to act out, the serious want to stop, the greedy want to take, the modest are not keen on what is not theirs. Therefore, the brave can be made to advance into battle, but cannot be made to hold tight. The serious can be made to keep security, but cannot be made to have contempt for an enemy. The greedy can be made to attack and pillage, but cannot be made to divide the spoils. The modest can be made to keep on their places, but cannot be made to plunder aggressively. The trustworthy can be made to keep their promises, but cannot be made to adapt to changes. These five are employed together by sages, used according to their abilities. Heaven and earth do not embrace just one being. Yin and yang do not produce just one species. So it is because an ocean does not refuse water flowing into it that it is so immense. It is because mountain timber does not refuse the curved and twisted that it gets so high. Sages do not refuse even the words of those who carry firewood 
and thus broaden their reputation. If you keep to one corner and neglect the myriad aspects of the totality, if you take one thing and discard the rest, then what you attain will be little and what you master will be shallow. And this offers a broad view, I feel, of permaculture and its perspectives on the world, aligning with these wisdom traditions from the East. The Taoist path gives us a really open-minded ability to stay curious and have wonder and always remember to give thanks, give thanks for your day, give thanks for those around you and our ability to continue to evolve, change, respond to one another in the world. Have a good rest of your day on planet Earth. Thank mm-hmm. you.